everyone. This is Brad Thomas with iREIT, and I'm back again for another CEO roundtable here. Uh, today, we've got CoreCivic, ticker symbol is CXW, and I'm joined with Damon Heinegger. J Damon is the CEO of CoreCivic, which is a uh, currently a publicly listed REIT uh, based in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Damon, it's good to see you today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. I really, really appreciate it. I'm uh, really grateful to have a little time with you. And uh, I've also got David Garfinkel, who's our CFO, joining us, along with Cameron Hopewell, who heads up our investor relations shop. Great. Well, thank you. Got the dream team on. Well, that's exactly good. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> it made me look good. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, listen, I know this. Uh, there's some recent news. Um, CoreCivic is going to convert back to a C-Corp. Of course, we've been covering the company now on the REIT side. And we're going to continue to cover the company on the C-Corp side. Uh, obviously, uh, it's still a real estate business, just structured in a different uh, format from a tax perspective. Go, so can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the decision to convert, convert back uh, to, from a REIT to a C-Corp? Yeah, thank you for that, Brad. And again, thank you for, for having us. So, you know, we've been a REIT since 2013. From 2000 to 2012, we were a C-Corp. So we know both structures obviously very, very well. But what we've seen here in the last you know, couple of years is just that the equity markets really hasn't given the company, uh, we think, uh, appropriate credit and given us a fair valuation. And you know, we benchmark ourselves all the time with, with other REITs. And so with the um, you know, probably last couple of years, pretty in-depth discussion with the board, we were saying, you know, is our, is our current corporate structure most appropriate or is there another structure we need to think about from a capital allocation per perspective? Because Again, paying out you know 200 million almost annually in, in dividends, it just appears with our valuation and the dividend yield, the market's just not really giving us credit for it. And we're also seeing that um, that play out a little bit from a risk perspective in the, the bond markets too. And so in the last, I'd say last six, seven months, I had a very uh, intense uh, but very positive discussion with the board about, again, is there a better corporate structure for us? And uh, over the last you know, few months, with the help of Mullis, who was an advisor for us, along with Latham Watkins, got to a decision in kind of May, January, or May or June of this year with the board saying, you know, probably you need to think about converting to a to C-Corp. Again, a C-Corp is not foreign to us. We have done it before uh, in previous times in the company's history. From a business perspective and a day-to-day -day operations, wasn't going to change anything uh, on how we business, do business, but also how we provide solutions to our government partners. So we put a notice out in June saying we're considering it. The feedback we got from the market was very positive. Uh, great feedback, especially from the large institutional investors that saying this probably makes a lot of sense. Again, it's a capital allocation strategy to, uh, uh, with the change in the, uh, from REIT to a to C Corp. And then I also I'd say in the bond markets. So you look at the you know, bond markets, you look kind of our outstanding maturities, it was clear Really, within a week, um, the, the rate's going down pretty pretty dramatically, and we've seen a pretty big uh, growth even since then in a favorable way since, uh, since the June announcement. So, so we feel like we're getting good validation from uh, the equity market and also from the bond market. So that led to the final board uh, decision earlier this month to uh, make it official and to be effective on uh, January 1. But let me ask Dave, see if you've got anything to add to that, a little bit of the journey and the decision we've made earlier this month. Yeah, just more or less reiterating what you said, Damon. We weren't getting credit in the equity markets, uh, you know, from a multiple. Our dividend yield was around 15% or higher. Uh, so, you know, it just doesn't make sense to continue to pay that level of dividend. Uh, it's not a sustainable level. So converting to a taxable C-Corp will enable us to retain our cash flows 
and pay down debt. And so we think that will result in really an improvement in our cost of capital as we've seen an increase in that cost of debt over the past couple of years. Yeah, you look at our, you look, you know, Brad, you know this, but I mean, you look at our company, especially our, our history. I mean, we're a very strong company. I mean, we feel like we've conservatively managed the the balance sheet and, uh, you know, how we uh, navigate through, especially in times like this with the, with the pandemic. Again, just not getting any credit for it. So we think this is a better way where we can uh, control that cash flow and have a capital allocation. It probably makes more sense, at least for the near to long term. Yeah. And provide this more flexibility, I'd say, you know, uh, once we pay down debt, the priority right now is to pay down debt. Uh, but it does enable us to, to uh, repurchase stock at the, at the appropriate time, which is a REIT because you have to pay out substantially all of your cash flow in the form of dividends to the shareholders. It just doesn't, you don't have the ability to uh, capitalize on uh, uh, stock buyback opportunities. Yeah, well, I saw this morning S&P, of course, uh, affirmed your, your uh, double B rating, but also revised it from uh, stable, uh, from negative. So uh, it looks like it's already, it's already working there. And that $200 million a year or so uh, certainly should, should be able to move that market. It'd be interesting to see how quickly uh, you know, if, if you get to investment grade, because uh, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's really going to be interesting. And, you know, it, it was a su- little bit of a surprise to me. I mean, I was, um, you, you kind of did telegraph, uh, you, you had some decisions to make and you had uh, brought in Mullis. Um, uh, and especially in light of the fact that I, I'm expecting, I've, I've been expecting a number of malls uh, to convert to back to C-Corps uh, for, for, for different reasons, obviously. Um, so in terms of your business model today, you mentioned, you know, it's pretty much business as usual. Um, can you talk a little bit about your business model? I know you, over the last several years, you've evolved into a, uh, a, 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 a business model where you're acquiring properties or have been acquiring properties outside of kind of the core business into some, some uh, state-owned properties or some, you know, government-owned properties. Can you talk a little bit about your business model and kind of where you're going from, from now? Yeah, great, great question. So, so as you know, we do really three key things. We do what we call course of safety, which is owning and operating of prison, jail, detention centers. That is still the majority of our business, uh, and that will continue to be the majority of our business for the foreseeable future. And that's, again, where the company was founded. That was you know, back in 1983. That was the solution that we provided that has really resonated with the, within the marketplace at the federal, state, and local level. The two are newer solutions is what we call core civic properties and core civic community. Uh, community is um, community corrections or halfway houses. We have about 30 of these properties nationwide, typically in metropolitan areas. And they're helping individuals in the last, you know, six to 12 months before we get released. So they have a big programmatic component along with getting, getting uh, connected with the employer, reunified with family. They also can participate in religious services. But the mission of those facilities are so similar to what we do in prison with our academic and vocational and addiction treatment programs. So there's a really nice synergy between those two, two operations. And the passion our team has for those missions just really, really is inspiring to see and it continues to resonate as a Discussions taking place, as you know, nationally on criminal justice reform, those type of solutions and programs are just so attractive in the uh, the marketplace. So the going back to core civic properties, this is also a relatively new solution. We started this back in 2013, and this is purely the idea of owning the real estate, either developing or providing existing uh, real estate and government being the uh, the tenant. 
we have acquired a few properties along the way, uh, primarily at the federal level through GSA leases, where you'd have tenants like Social Security Administration and whatnot. Those have been great transactions for us, but one thing we did announce with this conversion is that we're looking to potentially sell that entire portfolio uh, in one fell swoop, uh, just because we feel like going from a um, REIT to a C-Corp, probably for those type of transactions, it probably makes more sense for a REIT to own those type of uh, assets, just not being a, a lower lower cost of capital and a, a lower taxpayer. And so we've got you know a request out to the marketplace, potentially look at a transaction. But there was a couple of reasons why we acquired those properties. One of which is, is that that market is so mature that we thought there were some things in those uh, transactions we could transfer to the criminal justice side. So as you know, Brad, we've uh, had a couple of facilities in California and Oklahoma and more recently in Kentucky and Kansas, where we have either through existing facilities or developed new facilities to modernize correctional systems. So again, in the, the day, we'll own the asset, we'll lease it back, back to government, we'll maintain it, which is a huge value add to our government partners. The GSA lease properties provided some best practices and ways we can develop the leases, but also find funding sources for those projects. And so it's been a good journey to have those properties. But now with this conversion, probably makes sense for us to go ahead and look at a potential transaction where we can sell that take the cash and redeploy it in the business. So potentially pay down debt uh, and, and whatnot. And now that we've got the other part of the property side, which is again, criminal justice assets really developed and mature and really got a great, great business opportunities there. We feel like we're in a good spot where we can kind of peel off the other, the other assets. But I don't know, Dave, anything you want to add, add to that kind of, kind of near term dynamics and kind of the strategy with the GSA assets. Yeah. Yeah. We said uh, in our press release and it's in a, presentation on our website that we think we could potentially raise up to $150 million net uh, proceeds after the pay down of debt. Uh, so that would really just accelerate the strategy that we just outlined in terms of capital allocation, uh, accelerate the pay down of debt, get us to that point where we think we can buy back stocks sooner if the stock doesn't respond to the, to the, to the, trend, to the, um, to the strategy. Um, still focused in on the corrections industry. So we'll, we'll continue to have the property segment uh, there's uh, RFP outstanding right now with the state of Alabama. We feel like we're in a good position to win an award there, and the size of that that opportunity could replace the the properties that that uh, we're we're looking to sell. Uh, and then the last thing I'd add, you know, those the, those properties, the the non-correctional properties, uh, they trade you know at very low cap rates. So so there could be an opportunity where we're taking proceeds, paying down debt, and actually increasing uh, per share earnings at the same time. So uh, it, it really all makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned roughly 150 million. How, how large is that uh, portfolio roughly? Just in, I'm just in terms of uh, gross dollars invested. It's, it's about, well, it's probably $400 million gross investment. I think net book value, um, $30 million of net operating income. Just okay. And, and, and roughly cap rates, you, you know, what, what yeah. kind of range of cap rates were you acquiring at the time? You know, just... Yeah. Uh, depending on the asset, uh, you know, six to eight percent typically. We have some that we acquired, uh, you know, real strategic assets, uh, strong cash flows, uh, uh, niche type assets uh, leased to a state agency, for example, uh, could carry a higher cap rate. But I think the portfolio as a whole probably will trade between five and a half percent for maybe the trophy asset in that por portfolio uh, to seven percent, eight percent cap rate. Some Something like that depends on uh, uh, the mix. Again, we're trying to sell it as a portfolio. 
so it, it, we'll see. I think we've got strong interest already. We've got like 60 uh, non-disclosure agreements. So a lot of people looking at the portfolio and still hope to sell it as a portfolio. So we'll see what the blended cap rate will be at the end of the day. Yeah, Brad, you probably know better than us, but it, it appears in kind of the near term in, in all the asset classes, kind of government leased assets, you know, like like these are pretty high, pretty high demand versus alternatives. And I'll say challenges some asset classes have, you know, near term with the pandemic. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, uh, you know, we, of course, cover Easterly DEA and uh, they've just done extremely well, um, shareholder in, in DEA and uh, and also corporate offices, you know, perform really well. Um, one that's uh, struggling uh, and we just uh, upgrade is Postal, <laughs> which is kind of the new, one of the new kids on the block. But uh, right, right. Ob obviously there's, a, uh, I, I'm sure those guys at Postal can, uh, can, can kind of feel the pain that you guys have seen in terms of the political uh, headwinds and being a, you know, a, a Postal, uh, Post Office landlord, just like a prison landlord, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. So, um, and I guess the other question I would ask you since the announcement, and it looks like you're going to do this conversion, you know, effective January 1st of 2021. Uh, I know you've had a really struggle a little bit in terms of, you know, some of your banks. And again, you got in, in the middle of this kind of political um, arena. Have you already seen any in terms of your, your, cause you, your coverage universe, I guess this will be a new, uh, a new coverage universe for you since you're going to be converting back to a C Corp. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the banking and have you seen any, any, uh, obviously S and P kind of is starting to, uh, loosen up a little bit as evidenced by that, uh, recent change. Um, are you starting to see any, any, any positive news out there in terms of your, uh, banking community, your, your financing community? Yeah, I'll let you tackle that one, Dave, uh, cause I know you talk to them all the time. Yeah, yeah. So we have, and we're, we're speaking. We, our credit facility doesn't mature until 2023, so we're not in the marketplace. Uh, but we still have regular conversations with banks uh, that are not inside uh, the bank group right now. And so we have seen an interest, an increase in interest. But one of the one of the uh, positive aspects of converting to a taxable C corporation, where we're not paying out all of our cash flow, uh, is we don't need uh, uh, as large of a of a credit facility. We've got a billion dollar credit facility today. We probably don't need a billion dollar credit facility today, but the, it's been cheap capital uh, over, the, over the past you know, five, 10 years to just increase the size of that facility. So, the, so uh, with the ability to retain cash flows, we think we can reduce the size of that credit facility. So we don't need uh, some of the larger big banks that are in there, but I think we're still gonna see some interest from maybe the super regional, regional, maybe even community banks where we, where, where we have a presence and we already, you know, some of our employees are already doing business with some of those banks. So confident we'll be able to, uh, you know, re renew that facility uh, when it comes up for maturity. As Damon mentioned, there could be an opportunity to uh, refinance, maybe even do a comprehensive refinancing uh, potentially sooner than, you know, you typically do it in 2022 if you get a year in advance of the maturities. But uh, we'll keep it on that market. We'll continue to speak with banks and gauge interest. And if there's an opportunity to pull the trigger sooner, we'll do so. Great. Um, could you touch on the uh, uh, the Alabama deal? I know you've got, uh, looks like that is a roughly a billion dollar, pretty good size opportunity. Um, can you talk, touch on that just a little bit in terms of kind of what that, what that would look like if you, uh, you know, and has that been awarded kind of what's the process of that currently? Yeah, great, great question. So we are, uh, we're right in the, in the mix of it. Um, so yeah, go back a little bit. 
what Alabama was trying to do is uh, modernize basically a big chunk of their system. They were looking to potentially close about 15 facilities within the state of Alabama, consolidate um, and open three brand new facilities. Two of them, what I'd say are kind of general uh, purpose or general uh, population facilities. And then the third one being a more mission critical uh, for um, medical and maybe chronic care uh, population. So have some components within the facility that would allow uh, for infirmary beds, maybe uh, more kind of a more elaborate medical setting for uh, older, uh, an older population. So that procurement's been underway. Gosh, it's been almost uh, two years, I guess probably a year and a half. We submitted proposals uh, to the state of Alabama. I think they had initially five uh, viable alternatives. And then over the kind of spring summer months, they've whittled it down to uh, two providers, us being one of them. So we're feeling really good about our chances on that one. I would say probably a final award. Uh, and I suspect what they're probably going to do is they'll probably say that they're uh, going to neg negotiate uh, kind of final agreements with uh, one or both of us uh, that are still in, still in the mix. And then once you get to final uh, negotiations, that I would lead to an award and an execution at least. And then probably it's a multi-year build uh, for the facility itself. So we feel really good about our chances. As you know, Brad, you know, we had a real successful project we just delivered earlier this year in the state of Kansas. So it's a very similar opportunity and solution. And uh, I think the catalyst in Alabama, um, as I think you're probably aware, has been, you know, just the, the age of their infrastructure, but also they've had the federal courts who have really pressured them to say they need to reduce overcrowding and modernize their system. And, you know, kind of an obvious point, probably the bigger or near-term catalyst also has been the pandemic and how that's, you know, challenges systems that are severely overcrowded and, again, don't have the modern system or modern facilities to where they can segregate and, and uh, take advantage of, again, affirmative beds or negative pressure uh, cells or, you know, have a HVAC system where they can make sure that they can uh, deal with any kind of airborne viruses. So, so we feel good about our chances. I think probably this quarter, if not first quarter, uh, fourth quarter of this year, we'll get some clarity on exactly kind of the final, final outcome, but uh, we're def definitely in the mix and excited. And I'd say then more globally outside of Alabama, Nebraska has already announced that they're going to do an RFI. So probably a very similar uh, solution to looking for their state. And then Again, I think, unfortunately, fortunately, how you want to look at this, this pandemic is probably going to create a callus for other jurisdictions that are have older facilities, maybe have more dorm settings, which uh, unfortunately maybe creates a higher risk with a with a pandemic, and uh, that creates a maybe momentum where they're looking to you know, have the private sector like us come in and help modernize their system. Great. Well, you you mentioned the you know COVID nineteen the pandemic. Um, obviously, we're still in we're still in we're still in that uh, and. Um, you know, I'm just uh, curious, kind of how you how have you seen this at a high level in terms of? Um, I know we we had a uh, we interviewed you, um, I guess, in the first quarter, or just as the as really as the pandemic set in. And I know you were, uh, you know, your team was pretty busy at that time. And obviously, you're still still busy. But how would you kind of sum up what are you seeing out there right now uh, in the prison population in terms of uh, COVID-19? Is it has it gotten any better? And kind of where where do you see that today? Yeah, great, great question. I, I would say uh, overall, I feel like we've navigated pretty well through it. It's not been perfect, and I'm sure we're going to learn a few things all, along the way. And, and the good news is, is that we're able to kind of real-time benchmark ourselves against our public sector counterparts. Uh, and, and we're talking daily about, you know, things they're doing that maybe we take as a best practice and, and vice versa. So we're really sharing information very effectively. 
And I think I you know, mentioned also on the last call, obviously we're following all the guidance from CDC at the federal level and other, other entities at the federal level along with uh, state, and federal, uh, state and local uh, jurisdictions that are providing guidance and direction. So I would say to your question, I would say probably uh, like the general population, you saw a little bit of a reopening uh, kind of May, June uh, with, within our system. And so what's that mean for us specifically where we had um, – uh, you know, visitation or uh, transportation between units or, you know, the use of volunteers for some of our programs. Every jurisdiction a little different. And as you can appreciate, it's, you know, driven based on what's going on regionally or locally in that, er in that area. But uh, you are starting to see signs where uh, operations are trying to kind of creep back to uh, normalization. You probably... Um, probably would agree with this, but I think probably one of the key catalysts is going to be the, uh, you know, effective uh, uh, use of a um, vaccine. Um, so I think you're going to continue to kind of be in this environment where obviously protective equipment, social distancing and whatnot, uh, that'll continue to be kind of the operational practice as we go later this year into next year. But, um, but obviously we're keeping an eye on, you know, what happens not only locally, but also potentially nationally with a, uh, with a vaccine. The last thing I would say, and I think I mentioned this in our last call, is that you know, I mean, we have a very modern system. And so having uh, you know, a facility, facilities, I should say, that usually are a you know, third the age, maybe half the age of our public sector counterparts, that gives you a lot of flexibility for quarantining, again, infirmary beds, negative pressure rooms, where if you've got someone that's positive, you can effectively uh, you know, put them in quarantine and um, and cohort, maybe the other, other population that potentially was at risk of uh, being, being in contact. And, and so that has been also not only been reaffirmed in our kind of operational day-to-day uh, -day operations that we hear, but also create a little bit of a, an opportunity where we provide a little bit of a relief valve to these jurisdictions that maybe have older facilities that don't have that capability. Great. Well, I guess the last question I want to ask you, you all, is, um, you know, converting back to a C-Corp, obviously you've been uh, generating or providing, you know, uh, funds from operation, which is, as you know, the traditional earnings metric for REIT. So when you convert back to a C-Corp, are you going to just provide uh, earnings or are you going to kind of provide more of a, a REIT-like FFO metric? I'm just curious kind of how, how do you, uh, how do we analyze, I guess, cash flows um, and earnings, um, you know, going forward as a C-Corp? Yeah, that's, that's a great, great question. Uh, Dave, I'll let, you, I'll let you tackle that one, but that's, a, that's an important question that we've, yeah, we've talked about uh, near-term not only the board with others. So, Dave, I'll let you take yeah, that. Yeah, we'll continue to report FFO. We report AFFO in our supplemental disclosure report. So, we'll continue reporting those. We actually were reporting FFO and AFFO before we converted to a REIT in 2013. 2013, we adopted the NAREIT uh, white paper definition, strict definition of how FFO and AFFO are calculated. We had slight nuances prior to our conversion to a REIT. So going forward, it is going to be the exact same calculation. The only difference will be uh, FFO will be uh, reflective of uh, income tax provision. Great. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, staying in close contact with you guys. Uh, obviously, we're going to miss that dividend at the REIT, at the REIT world uh in the REIT land but uh but obviously you know we believe in the business model and uh the management team so looking forward to uh, staying in touch with you guys and uh hope you're safe and and we'll we'll talk to you again soon thank you very much again real honor to be with you and uh appreciate having a little time talking about the company and this recent announcement so thank you brad thank you